as well. So good to have you. A uh, couple of things before we get going. One is, can I encourage you to grab your Bibles, have them open in front of you. Um, if you haven't got a paper Bible, then there's a bunch on the, the table at the back, and I'd encourage you to grab that now. One of the great things about having a physical paper Bible is, especially Jonah, you can have the whole book open in one, on just one page. Uh, the two pages there, um, in, so if you're looking in your blue, blue Pew Bibles, 928, 929, uh, and that'll be handy because we're going to dip back into a few little sections of Jonah uh, that we've skipped over on our way through, and we're going to reflect back on those this evening. Very handy for you to have uh, those Bibles open. Uh, and I had some great questions that have come through about Jonah over the last few weeks. Some just people sent me a text, some sent an email. I'm curious about um, whether or not I was too negative about Jonah, um, uh, curious about the way in which the book as a whole fits together. Love to have those questions sent through as they come to you. Well, as we briefly observed last week when Pete Scholl was preaching to us from chapter 3 of Jonah, the chapter 3 of the book ends with a perfectly satisfying conclusion. You might remember this, at the end of chapter 3, by the end of chapter 3, we seem to have witnessed the apparent repentance of Jonah as he finally submits obediently to God's call to go and preach to the Ninevites. We see the repentance and the restoration of the pagan city of Nineveh itself. They, they repent from their sin and cast themselves upon God's mercy. Pretty good way to finish up a story, an account. We're left with this hope-filled horizon, both for Jonah's career as a prophet, he seems to have gotten on the right track, uh, as well as for Nineveh's future prosperity, as those who've submitted themselves to God's call upon their lives. And in fact, when the Islamic writings kind of, I guess you could say, appropriated the story of Jonah, they rewrote the story of Jonah into the Quran, that's exactly where they finish the story. They finish at the end of the content of where chapter 3 gets up to. What we're looking at tonight doesn't appear in the Quran's copying of the Scripture's account of the prophet Jonah. In chapter 4, today's passage, I guess you could, you could almost describe it as being a bit like a credit cookie. I don't know if you've heard that uh, term thrown around before. I hadn't before I was reading about it this week. But you know when you go to the movies, uh, the credits pop up, they come up on the screen, and then sometimes partway through the credits or right at the very end of the credits, there's an unexpected scene for the movie that's inserted into it. Most of the time, it's a pretty inconsequential thing, you know, some offcuts, some silliness of the actors, it doesn't really contribute much to the story. Sometimes, though, they introduce an idea that throws into question the main throw, the main story of the movie itself. Or, or perhaps a, a better way of describing it even is to speak about what in music and literature is sometimes called a coda. Uh, now, sometimes codas are very brief, sometimes they're more substantial, but a coda is a piece of music that follows on after the main mu uh, movement of the music piece has concluded. You can see it there circled up on the screen. It's a separate bit of music that is added on separately at the end of the main movement after the climax of the musical piece has been reached. The coda stands apart in some ways, unexpectedly, and yet it often, especially in, in some uh, composers like Beethoven, use them significantly. Uh, in some cases, the coda redefines or defines and reshapes how you understand and hear the whole piece of music that had come before it. 
And I think that's the kind of the thing that we have here in chapter 4 of Jonah. As the final credits fade out, so to speak, the picture fades back in for an unexpected ending. Uh, And we've already been introduced to that uh, by Peter last week, but let's have a look at it again. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 4. Uh, so this is just after Jonah, uh, sorry, Nineveh have repented and God has shown them mercy. Then we read chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this, that is God showing mercy to Nineveh, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Uh, Jonah's bitterness there is a little bit jarring, isn't it? Jonah despises, he's embittered by God's patience, by God's compassionate tendency to relent from passing judgment or exercising judgment. Jonah's anger is deliberately presented as being kind of infantile, like a little temper tantrum. And yet I do wonder how at ease we ourselves always are with the patience that God displays towards the wickedness in our own world, in our own time and place. Aren't there moments when God's compassion seems strange and alien even to us? when God's tolerance of, when God's inexplicable patience towards wickedness and injustice in our world leaves us feeling perhaps a little bit embittered, maybe even cranky, perhaps not as much as Jonah, at least we don't confess it. Um, I was reading a review uh, that was in the Guardian newspaper. Uh, It was a review of a recent exhibition in the uh, British Museum that was displaying Assyrian art. I've got an example of a piece of that art up on the screen here. Uh, The reviewer of the exhibition was describing this bit of art, uh, referring to this bit of art, as they reviewed the exhibition as a whole. Uh, They wrote, Assyrian art contains some of the most appalling images ever created. In one scene, tongues are being ripped from the mouths of prisoners a practice intended to mute their screams when, for the next stage of their torture, they are skinned alive. Now, thankfully, this bit of uh, carving, this relief has been a bit worn and knocked about, and so you don't get to see the, the full gruesomeness of it. But had we ourselves been witness to such breathtaking brutality? Might we not find ourselves empathizing a little bit more with Jonah's misgivings about God's mercy and compassion, rather than empathising with God's compassion towards the wicked. Uh, The practices described in that stone relief are a little bit later than Jonah's time, but we can imagine that Nineveh wasn't exactly the most gracious and gentle of cultures, even in Jonah's day. I think the truth is that usually it doesn't take very much more than a bit of mockery in the media for us to get our backs up, to turn our hearts sour towards those who perhaps mock us or ridicule us as God's people. Perhaps it's not that hard to understand Jonah's misgivings at this point. 
friends, before we can hope to feel with God, before we can hope to empathise with God's compassion for a nation like Nineveh, I think we'll actually need to genuinely learn to see Nineveh in the same kind of way that God himself saw Nineveh. Now, throughout the book of Jonah, God repeatedly describes, I wonder if you notice this, it's a little bit of a rhythm, actually. God, uh, Jonah, uh, the book repeatedly um, has God describing Nineveh as a great city. Uh, he describes Nineveh as a city that is great, even in its wickedness, a city that is great in terms of its regional significance, a nation that is great even in its ignorance. And I think it's only in getting a proper grasp of Nineveh's greatness as a wicked nation, as a significant nation, as an ignorant nation, that we'll be able to understand how to truly empathise with God's strange compassion for people such as the city of Nineveh. Firstly, God sees the great Nineveh as a wicked city. I'm going to duck back to uh, our opening of Jonah, if you've got your Bibles there. Um, glance back to Jonah chapter 1, uh, the first couple of verses. I'll read those for us. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. God sees Nineveh as a hotbed of human wickedness. Wickedness such that it gets up his, noses, his nose, even from in heaven. It's a city of corruption, a metropolis of immorality, and often Christians have tended to feel that way about cities. I guess you could understand why. Cities have this tendency sometimes to concentrate in them the worst of humanity together all in one place. We tend to feel the potency of, of human wickedness when it's all gathered in one spot. I wonder um, what cities come to mind for you throughout the rest of the Scriptures, what other cities perhaps are brought to mind that enjoy a similar dubious reputation in the Scriptures as Nineveh does? Uh, perhaps, perhaps you think of the Tower of Babel and Babylon, uh, we reflected on Babylon, didn't we, as we were looking through Daniel, this city, a nation that was full of pride and arrogance, that oozed human arrogance and pride. Or perhaps it brings to mind for you Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, two cities that were reputed for their sexual and moral wickedness. And in fact, the same kind of language that was described of Sodom, in God's kind of way of describing it, is also used of Nineveh in those opening verses of the book of Jonah. A little bit of Bible trivia. All these cities, Nineveh, Babel, Sodom, Gomorrah, were all founded by cousins. That's, pretty one, that's one uh, pretty full-on family, isn't it? That they could, within themselves, uh, develop this many pretty notorious cities. And we'll come back to reflect on what links or what relates between these different cities uh, a little bit later on this evening. But the point to grasp here, first of all, is that if we wish to truly empathise with God's compassionate character, if we wish to embody God's compassionate character, we can't do so by simply minimising the reality of human wickedness, sweeping it under the carpet as if it wasn't an issue. Even in this book of Jonah that speaks a lot of God's compassion, 
Nineveh's wickedness is never ignored or tampered down. God's compassionate heart for sinners is not grounded in an affirmation of humanity's fundamental goodness. That's not why God is compassionate. God's compassionate heart is neither rose-tinted nor soft-focused with respect to the capacity of the human heart to harbour and to nurture evil. While the book of Jonah really is a book that champions God's compassion, that celebrates God's gracious character, it never softens or downplays Nineveh's wickedness. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 9... Uh, where we see the king of Nineveh speaking, it literally, literally describes God's anger as that which burned against Nineveh. That, that idea of it being a fierce anger is this language of burning, a, a fierce fire, almost fire and brimstone type language in its intensity. To empathise with, to embody God's own compassion towards our world won't involve ignoring or whitewashing, or failing to grieve and mourn its wickedness. And yet, if that was the only perspective that we had towards the world around us, an awareness of its great wickedness, of how it gets up God's nose, so to speak, then we'd end up likely being just as angry, just as judgmental, just as self-righteous and lacking in compassion as Jonah himself proves to be in this passage. For God not only describes the great city of Nineveh as wicked, it also presents it as a significant city, one that he is invested in, that God cares about. Uh, Nineveh's greatness um, is described in several places for us. Uh, We'll look at a few in chapter 4 a little bit later on. But first glance to chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. I don't think those words about the size of the city of Nineveh, the fact that it took three days to visit it properly, is simply a reference to its large area. Nineveh's greatness here is in its prominence. It's not just a stopover, it's not just a pit stop. Despite its great wickedness, it is a city of regional regional significance, of cultural significance. And actually, it's not the first time in the Bible that Nineveh is described as a great city of the region. Uh, In fact, Nineveh is also singled out as being a distinctively great city back in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, You might like to go and have a look at that chapter later on. Uh, It introduces, really, the establishment of some of the first cities that the Scriptures ever speak about. Uh, After the world had been destroyed by Noah's flood, the flood that that Noah was involved with, you might recall that story, Noah's descendants were commanded by God to go out into the earth and to fill it. And it was Noah's descendants, his immediate descendants, who founded the cities such as Nineveh, Babylon, Sodom, and Gomorrah. These cities were, in effect, symbols. These cities were artefacts of God's decision to spare humanity, a place of compassion, a, a kind of a place of 
compa uh, compassionate limit, I guess. God was placing a compassionate limit upon the scope of the judgment of the flood. These cities were concrete evidence of God's compassionate commitment to sustaining both humanity and the rest of his creation. That following the flood, he wasn't done with it. Cities like Nineveh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Babel, were significant despite their wickedness. Um, Genesis 18, uh, a few chapters later, recounts an occasion in which God stood on a mountaintop with Abraham, uh, explaining how he was about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. I wonder if you uh, recall that account. And up there on the mountain, looking out over the city of Sodom, Abraham pleads that God might spare the city from destruction. Do you remember how God replies? Abraham says, please spare the city, even if there's only 50, even if there's only 20, even if there's only a small handful of righteous people within it, spare them from destruction. And God agrees, he says he is willing to spare Sodom, if it turns out there are righteous people amongst it. It turns out that there's only one. But God does pause the pouring out of his judgment so that they might escape. Now, the New Testament letter of 2 Peter affirms that such compassion as this lies at the heart of who God is, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 will pop up on the screen. There we read, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Whether it be in the Old Testament or in the New, we see time and again God's compassionate response, even towards those who are wicked. He doesn't want them to perish. He wants them to repent, return and be spared. But such merciful longing seems to be utterly alien to Jonah's way of thinking, doesn't it? Uh, have a look with me at, we'll read the, the, the lion's uh, share of chapter 4. Uh, now, if you have a look with me at chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. We see here that this longing to see uh, others experience God's mercy is utterly alien to Jonah's way of thinking. We read that after Jonah had thrown his little tantrum about God showing mercy, verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, 
and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have been concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Note, first of all there, that after witnessing the city of Nineveh repent of their sin, that after seeing God relent from pouring out judgment on the city, what is it that Jonah does in verse 5? We read that he goes outside of the city, he builds a shelter, a little booth, he's obviously planning on being there for a while, and he waits to see what will happen to the city. What was Jonah waiting to see, do you think? Perhaps Jonah was stubbornly waiting in the hope that God's patience would wear out and judgment actually would come upon them. Perhaps Jonah was waiting in the hope that Nineveh would default on their repentance and he might yet get to witness their destruction from above from heaven. Jonah was so obsessed by his own sense of justice and fairness. Jonah was so obsessed by his own momentary comforts. Jonah was so caught up in the mercies that he himself expected to be shown by God that to him, his concern over the well-being of a, a temporary shade vine took on an equal scale of importance to God's concern for a city of 120,000 repentant pagans. You get that impression as you read the passage? In Jonah's mind, his concern over that plant was at least of weighing in of equal value as the death of 120,000. Actually, he probably weighted as more significant. And the very idea of such an equation is supposed to strike as preposterous. The very idea of such an equation of Jonah's mind is meant to strike us as obscene. And yet perhaps this whole scandalous scenario, this outrageous equating in Jonah's mind of the importance of his vine with the importance of a whole city of 120,000 people, perhaps this whole scenario is a bit of a stitch-up, a story that's composed to catch us out in our own outrage at Jonah's ridiculousness. For as much as we readily scoff at the infantile priorities of the prophet Jonah... I wonder if we don't sometimes unthinkingly measure our own concerns by the same kind of distorted scales and measurements. Might we ever grieve with greater intensity over a missed parking space than for our neighbours to whom God remains unknown? Might we pray that God's compassion be applied first to our own frustrated plans relatively little thought given to the, pressure, the precarious future of those who don't know God, who don't trust Him, who don't know of His mercy? Do we perhaps bemoan the felt absence of God's compassion in the midst of our own trials and griefs while remaining comparatively unmoved with compassion 
towards those who are altogether ignorant of God's gracious character. Now, we hopefully don't find glee in the destruction of others in quite the way that the prophet Jonah does. I hope not. But have we got the balance right between our own concerns and God's concerns? I think that's really the uncomfortable question that the book of Jonah leaves us grappling with. The thought that there would be those who remain ignorant of God's merciful character does seem scandalous to God's way of thinking. Have a look with me again at those closing verses of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprung up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Uh, This idea of someone not knowing their right hand from their left is effectively a metaphor for spiritual ignorance, cluelessness. Back in chapter 1 of Jonah, we learnt that the pagans were ignorant of God's name. They were ignorant of who to pray out to for mercy in the midst of their distress in that storm on the sea. In chapter 3, they heard Jonah's preaching of judgment, but they were ignorant of how God might receive their repentance. You might recall that the king said, let's all wear sackcloth and ashes. Who knows? This God may turn and relent from the threatened judgment. They didn't know how God might respond to their repentance and their grief over their sin. And yet Jonah did know the mercy of God and yet displayed so little of it reflected in his own attitudes and character and actions. Jonah had such a sense of entitlement towards God's mercy for himself that he despised, even to the point of death, when the heat of the noonday sun made him uncomfortable and overheating. Jonah sat on the hill outside the city of Nineveh, overlooking it, completely unmoved by the 120,000 ignorant pagans who had recognised their dire need of God's mercy and had sought it from him. In contrast, you might have noticed in the second passage it was read for us this evening from Luke, Jesus, a prophet almost completely ignored by his own people, stood on a hill overlooking God's own city of Jerusalem, a city that should have been filled with people who understood and valued God's mercy towards them. And Jesus wept over them. Jesus wept over a city who complacently took God's mercy for granted, despised it. Uh, Have a look with me, Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and following. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. 
God's people who should have recognised God's mercy seem so insensible to it. Now, of course, Jesus expressed God's compassion for that city of Jerusalem by doing far more than simply weeping over it from a position far outside the city looking over the top of it. Rather than waiting outside the city for God's judgment to fall upon it, as Jonah had done, Jesus actually entered into the city in order to taste God's judgment upon himself in their place. Where Jonah was angry enough to die at even the very thought of God's compassion being offered to others, Jesus was moved with a kind of compassion that led him to willingly give his life so that even those who had despised the day of God's mercy might come to know the gracious heart of God. I wonder might, uh, what might change for us over the course of this year if on the scales of our own hearts, a God-shaped compassion outweighed our more self-serving concerns and comforts. What might change for us in our prayer lives, in the shape of the prayers that we offer to God this year, if on the scales of our own hearts, a God-shaped compassion weighs more heavily than a self-serving concern and comforts? What might change for us in how we use our finances and our time over the course of this year, if on the scale of our own hearts, a God-shaped compassion weighed more heavily than a self-serving concern and self-serving comfort? In who and what might we invest emotionally in? In how might we engage in and think about church life if on the scale of our own hearts it was a God-shaped compassion that weighed more heavily than our own self-serving concerns and comforts. In the end, it's only the work of God's Spirit that will begin to transform and shape the weights and balances of our own hearts, our own loves and concerns, desires and longings. So how how about we begin, at least tonight, by praying that God would be doing that work within us as a church over the course of this year that we might increasingly have this God-shaped compassion for the world around us increasing in its weight and our own self-focused, self-serving concerns and comforts growing ever less in importance to us. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we confess that often, like Jonah, it is our own comforts and concerns that weigh most heavily upon our hearts. Father, we thank you that your grace and your patience is such that even those uh, self-concerned worries and and anxieties we can bring, bring to you in prayer without any fear or anxiety, any hesitation. And yet, Father, we ask that those own concerns and anxieties might not be the only things that weigh upon our hearts, that you might be working within us by your spirit, a deepening desire to share your compassion for a world that has turned against you. Father, we ask that you might grow within our own hearts a deepening delight and longing to see others share 
in that same mercy and compassion that we ourselves have. And Father, we ask that that growing share in your compassion might reflect itself outwards in the way in which we deal with others and the way in which we encourage one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.